Good morning. We will have a slightly different format uh, to our worship service this morning. We're going to have songs, we're going to have uh, devotional thoughts and prayers interspersed throughout that are focusing our hearts and our minds on a particular topic. And really what we're going to be talking about is creation. Uh, we're going to be talking about new creation, and we're going to be talking about uh, the, the plan of God from creation to new creation and our role within it. To begin, I think we should think about the world that God made. God made a good world. As a matter of fact, when you read through Genesis 1, if you're looking for keywords, good is one of them. It pops up over and over again. After everything God makes, he looks at it and he says that it is good. In fact, even before he makes uh, humankind, God looks at the world over and over again and says that it is good. Uh, that should perhaps humble us a bit to recognize that what God has made is good, whether we're here or not. Um, but the last thing that God does in day six is after looking at this good world that he makes, he puts his image within it. God breaks the pattern of the, and the structure of the text that, that is very um, re- repetitive throughout Genesis 1. And instead of saying, and there was evening and there was morning, a sixth day, God begins to have a conversation and he says, let us make man in our image. When you look at the world around us, when you look at Genesis 1, when you look at the detail and the design and the beauty, it is without question that the God we worship admires and appreciates beauty, that he is an artist and who can create incredible things. And one of the uh, most fascinating aspects of Genesis 1 is the role of mankind within it when God says that he's going to put us here in his image. And then when you look at the descriptive words that are used after saying that we are in his image, we are called to do the types of things that God does. So right after God says, this is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply. That's the idea of giving life and spreading that life around. That's one of the divine initiatives. That's what God does. God's the one who gives life. And yet he creates us in his image to create more life. He says, to fill the earth and subdue it, in verse 28. Again, bringing order out of chaos, subduing a world. Apparently, the whole world wasn't subdued yet. The whole world wasn't yet Eden. Uh, there were places where humankind had uh, to go and take the goodness of God and to bring it to those regions and those areas to make it fruitful and to make it, uh, to make it beautiful and beneficial. He says, I'm also commissioning you to do that. And then finally, in verse 28, he says, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Then he he says those similar ideas again towards the end. But notice the idea of ruling and rulership. Who is the ultimate and supreme ruler of all that there is? God. Yet when he creates us, he invites us to spread and create life. To subdue the parts of the world still in need of it. And then to rule. Those are all God actions. And yet he's inviting us into it. God is an artist. When we make art, we're invited into that divine initiative. When we plant, we're invited into that divine initiative. In fact, when you get to Genesis 2 and you get a little bit more uh, specific about like the names of people and what jobs they're given, you're looking at Adam. And he is designed and created, we're told, because there was no man to cultivate the ground. 
And so God created Adam out of the dust of the earth, and he puts him in a garden to cultivate it and to keep it. That's, that's that same idea. He has a mission and a purpose in the garden. And he's supposed to make it, to rule it well, and to make the things flow well, and, and to cultivate it, to, to protect it, and to make sure that it is flourishing. And then, right after that, God forms the animals and he brings them to Adam. And what does Adam do? He gives names to them. Okay, if you read Genesis 1, if you're looking at who is giving names to stuff all through Genesis 1, it's God. He called the light day. The darkness he called night. That word called is the same word that's used here in Genesis 2 when it says that Adam called names to all of the animals. So one question we could ask ourselves is, why would God give us that mission? Uh, Why would God want us to subdue the earth when he could do it a million times way better in an instant? Why would he want us to be fruitful and multiply when he could fill his own earth in an instant? Perfectly. God could rule way better than we can. God could cultivate and keep the garden way better than we can. Why would he say, I need a man to do it? He could do it. Why would God have Adam call names to the animals instead of naming them like he named everything else? It's because God created us with a high, valuable purpose in his world. God wants us to be part of who he is. He wants us to bear his image in the world around us and to do the types of things that he does to care for this world, to rule it well. You know, being a ruler doesn't just mean getting your way all the time. God's not that type of ruler. Uh, God is the type of ruler who goes to the cross for those whom he rules. Uh, We should be the types of rulers who take care, even if it means sacrifice on our part, of what God has called us to do. That's the divine commission in the first couple chapters of Genesis. And yet, when you get to chapter 3, you get an idea of how quickly all of that unravels. Instead of bringing more life into this world, after a brief conversation with a serpent, we bring death into it. Instead of retaining that close fellowship with God as he walked through the garden and we were with him, we end up having separation and exile from God. Instead of a beautiful garden... We fill the world with thorns and with thistles, with pain and with death. That creates a need, and it's that need that the rest of the story of the Bible will be focused on. We speak of God as creator because he is the one who created all that there is. And we often think of that creation as something that happened back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But as you read through the rest of the Bible, because of that need that we created by failing on our part, bringing sin and sickness and death and and immorality into God's world, there are times when God needs to create again. I don't know if we always think about it this way, but one of the most uh, profound acts of creation on God's part took place in the womb of a girl named Mary about 2,000 years ago. that was an act of creation. God, the incarnation is an act of special creation in this world where Jesus came and was given the name Emmanuel. Now, the reason we don't call him Emmanuel is because Emmanuel is not really his given name that, you know, people were supposed to know him and call him and address him as, but it's a description of who he is. And what Emmanuel means, according to uh, the John, or, uh, Matthew chapter 1 and Isaiah seven fourteen, is God with us. When you think of what we did in the garden, we turned the tree of life into exile and death. We turned the presence of God into distance and exclusion. 
And yet through the incarnation, through the act of creation of the, in the virgin uh, birth, Jesus comes as God with us to restore that fellowship that we had with God. Jesus not only restores God's presence among his people and tabernacles among us and, and becomes that new living, breathing, walking, talking temple. You know, the temple was always supposed to be God's presence. Well, Jesus becomes a temple in a new way, a way where you could actually go to him for forgiveness instead of a brick and mortar building. He is the one who is the very essence of who God is. And he walked around the streets of Jerusalem, bringing new life to people, raising even the dead, bringing healing, bringing Eden back into the world where he was. If you wanted Eden, you get closer to Jesus because that's where you find life and that's where you find forgiveness and that's where you find the very presence and fellowship with God. In fact, when you look to Jesus, Paul describes him as the image of the invisible God. And I think that should put two thoughts in our mind. One of those thoughts is that, yeah, God is invisible. So if you want to see who God is, you look to the visible Jesus. Jesus is your best picture for learning who God is. But remember, he is the image of God. What were we created as? The image of God. He's not only a picture of who God is, he's the perfect picture of what we are called to be also. By looking to Jesus, you see the perfect human and you see the perfect God in one. And in that, we begin to see what our mission and purpose in this world is. Through God's act of creation that brought fellowship that was lost at Eden back to restoration among his people. And through the resurrection of Jesus, we see another act of new creation. We see the first body of resurrection life brought uh, into this world through Jesus. We see that tomb empty and his body changed into an eternal, glorious body that we all one day look to aspire to. And in that, the death that, was, uh, that took over this creation at the exclusion from Eden is now defeated and turned into life. Through the... Through us, uh, we took life in the tree of life and we turned it into death. Through Jesus, he took the death that he experienced on that tree and on that cross and turned it into life. He reversed the curse and he reversed the order of things so that we, as people who are followers of his and people who are in his image and daily being conformed to his image, can have hope of that life as well. Resurrection means that death isn't the end of the story. It's the beginning of a new story. And that's why Paul, in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about Jesus, he will call him the new Adam. Because we had a first Adam. We had an Adam way back then. And what happened there? Life was turned to death. But now we have a new Adam who comes and he turns that death into life. And he's the first person of that new resurrection life of which we will all one day take hold of. God's not done creating. He created in Genesis. He created throughout the life of Jesus. And we still have future creation to uh, put our hope in. So we've talked about creation. We've talked about the new creation in Christ. One thing that we have to then ponder is, what does that mean for us if through Jesus God has started something new? Through the resurrection, a new age has begun, a new creation has begun, and a new world has begun. And we, as followers of Jesus, are part of that new world. What does that mean for us? Well, I think the Apostle Paul is someone who spent some time reflecting upon that. It changed everything for him. It changed his view of what we ought to do, and it changed his view of who we are. It changed his view of our hope and of our call. Uh, I want to think of just a couple of passages um, 
that Paul writes as he reflects upon what new creation means. He dealt with some controversy in his day. In the book of Galatians, there's controversy about what is it that you have to do to become part of the covenant family of God. And those who have been part of uh, the Jewish teaching and community and those who have been brought up knowing Torah, a lot of them are of the mindset that, well, just because the Messiah has come doesn't mean we throw Torah out the window. Uh, Jesus wasn't about ignoring or breaking Torah, and so so we shouldn't either. And so uh, what did Abraham have to do? What did all those who came after him had to do? They had to be circumcised. And so they could come up with some good rational reasons. They could put their finger on some Bible verses and say, yeah, you should be circumcised. The Messiah, and what did you, I mean, did Jesus ever say you don't have to be circumcised? Read through everything Jesus said. He doesn't say that. And so they can make a pretty good argument saying this is always what you've had to do to become part of the people of God. And yet Paul finds a flaw in it. Uh, Paul finds finds that when they start dividing people based on circumcision and uncircumcision, what they're doing is they're creating schisms and they're creating uh, fellowship issues. They're creating two tables where there should be only one. And through Christ, whether you are Jew or Gentile, you are all invited to the same family. And your circumcision has no bearing on that. God did not come and die on the cross so that you could be circumcised. And so that might seem like a strange and distant issue to us, but it's a, it was a major one in the early church for thinking about how could people sit at the same table even if they have these cultural social differences like circumcision and uncircumcision. That used to be a line in the sand, a line in the stone. You know, you didn't cross it. But Paul is now saying you can cross that. And that doesn't mean anything. In Galatians 6.15, he has this incredible verse where after explaining for a lengthy period of time why it is that circumcision should not be a boundary marker for the early church, he says, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything but new creation. He seems to think that if you're going back to the old creation to get the idea of circumcision and you're trying to bind it on people in the new creation, you've misunderstood the cosmic change that took place in the resurrection of Jesus. Things are different now. Do not go back and try to justify practices in the new world by looking at the old world. A new world has come. And so we can very easily look at the world and we could think in Paul's day and we could think, I mean, that tree was here 60 years ago and it's still here right now. Things look the same as they used to look. It's it's still the same world and, and I don't know why you would say that. But Paul is convinced that even though there are things that might look the exact same and you might have the same name and you might look the same and all of that, something has radically changed in the whole world through Jesus. Not only have things changed in the way we ought to act, not only has new creation rendered circumcision completely irrelevant, which used to be a major issue, new creation has changed who you are yourself. Uh, in in, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul talks about if anyone is in Christ, some of our Bibles say something like he is a new creation or uh, it, new creation has come. Basically, there's no verb there. It's just if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Behold, all the old things have passed. All things have become new. The idea is it's like if you're in Christ, just exclamation point, new creation. Like that's what you're seeing. You see it in the world. You see it in this person. You see it all around. When people become part of the mission of Christ, when people put on Christ, They become part of the world, a new world, in a completely new way. They have a new Adam now. 
Your Adam is not the story of sickness and sin and death in the garden. Your Adam is the victory over death in the garden uh, through Jesus. Remember, Jesus in the Gospel of John is buried in a garden. New life in the garden defeats the death that came in the garden. And that's our new story. And when someone's in Christ, celebrate that. New creation has come. There's a passage I want to read from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Talking about God's creation... He says, for we are his workmanship or the work of his hands. We are what God created. Christians, Jew and Gentile alike in one family is a creation of God. When you have people from different walks of life and different uh, places in this world who ordinarily would have nothing in common with one another, but through Christ are joined together, that's an act of creation on God's part. And you are his workmanship. You have been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would so walk in them. Think about what that means. You are his creation. You've been created for good works. You know what that reminds me a little bit of? What we read in Genesis. They were created to subdue and to multiply and to rule and to cultivate and to name and to take part of. And I could see all of those and I could say, well, God just created everything by the word of his mouth. Surely he could do those other things better than we can. He clearly can. We brought sin into the world almost immediately. It's like God could do that way better. And when I look at our mission in Christ, I say the same thing. It's like, yeah, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's not a work I can do that God couldn't do better. So why was I created for good works instead of God creating good works? I'm really glad we had Psalm 8 read uh, a moment ago uh, where that's the question the psalmist is asking. He's like, when I consider everything you made and the grandeur of who you are, what in the world is man that you consider him or that you even think about us? You know, when you think about everything that God made, all of his creation, there's really only one of them that emphatically rebels against him and rejects him. Uh, us, and I guess you could maybe in the spiritual world say a few things also, but like flowers don't disobey God. Uh, you know, like animals don't disobey God. The stars and the sun and the moon, they don't disobey God, but I do. And yet I'm the one who God loves and calls and redeems and gives this mission to fill his world as a new creation with his own good works. That's quite a call. In the way you live into that call is remembering that you're part of something different now. Through the resurrection of Jesus, the whole world has changed. And you're part of the new world with a new Adam and a new hope and a new vocation and a new mission. And Paul often uses the imagery of baptism to link back to when this moment happened in our lives. Where our old self was crucified and we were raised up to be a new person in a new kind of life. It's a wonderful idea. But again... Remember that uh, Paul saying this, someone could easily say, what do you mean new world and new creation? This tree was here 60 years ago and it's still here now. Looks a lot like the old creation to me. In fact, death is still around. In fact, sin is still around. You could say there was a new Eden and a new story that you're a part of, but when I look at the world around us, I see a lot of the exact same problems that have always been a part of this world. So what do you mean something new has begun? I think Jesus had to deal with that issue as well. Jesus bringing the very kingdom of God, the reign of God on earth, and people could look around and you could say, okay, I can see the reign of God in some instances. I can see it when people are forgiven, or I can see it through some of the healings, or I can see it in in these different ways. 
But what about everything else that looks horrible around us? What about when buildings fall down and people die? What about the tragedy and the sickness? And the, What about all of that? And Jesus, I think one of the purposes of his parables is to try to give some clarity on some of those issues. One of the parables that often comes to my mind when I think of the conflict and the tension between living as part of new creation within the world of old creation is the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares, where you do have God's kingdom, and you do have the will of God. You do have the wheat there. But if you were just to look out at that field, you'd see weeds. You might see some spots of something good, but it looks like everything's just as big of a mess as it ever was. And Jesus says, you let them grow up together because a day is coming. There's a day we can put our hope in when there will be a separation and the good will win. And through God, we will win. And that's the day that we are longing for. There is a day that we're longing for. A day when the tares will be removed and the wheat will remain. A day when the hopes that we have and that fill us now will come to fruition and will be our reality. We know that day is coming because of who Jesus is and because of his resurrection, which started the final resurrection, which started that new creation into which we all put our hope. The Bible ends with a lot of the themes that we've been talking about and trying to pick up on throughout these lessons emerging together into one glorious image of a new Jerusalem and a new Eden on a new heavens and a new earth. And every one of those words is about new creation. In Revelation chapter 21, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, we will uh, conclude uh, our, our uh, our lessons this morning by reading through these chapters. But I want you to notice the new creation idea. The new Jerusalem idea. There's a new city and there's a new Eden of which we are all invited into and we all become a part of. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's Genesis 1-1 with the word new added. You know, it's, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, now I see a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, For the first heavens and earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. You remember way back in Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, before God says, let there be light, you have the dark, chaotic waters. You have the sea and the Spirit of God hovering over them. Well, that was the the first picture you got of this world. And what God then did is he ordered the sea and he moved it around so that there was a firmament above, which he called the heavens. And there was dry earth, which he called, dry land, which he called the earth. And, And he put the waters in one spot. But the waters have signified and represented chaos, uncreation and death to a lot of people. That's why just about every story that takes place in the Bible on the water is a scary story. It's a, it's, it's a shipwreck. It's a, you know Paul being shipwrecked or Jonah being shipwrecked and then swallowed by the great fish and or Noah and the flood. I mean, every one of these stories is kind of a disaster. Um, but that's what the sea represented. What we'll see is in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, you have the waters and you have darkness. In this image of new creation, it says the sea is gone and there's no longer any darkness. The whole thing is about the glory and the radiant new creation of God. Uh, in, In verse 2, he says, And then I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The old Jerusalem 
wasn't what God called it to be, but he has not given up on Jerusalem. There will be a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Remember Eden. Remember God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Remember Jesus tabernacling among us. In fact, that word tabernacle among them is specifically used by John in John chapter 1 and verse 14 when he says the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. That word is used of the, of the ministry of Jesus. It's used of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And it's used right here of our future hope where God is with us, dwelling with us once again forevermore. He says... In verse 4, that he will be so close to us that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. You don't often wipe the tears away from the eyes of a stranger or from a person you don't know or don't have a close loving relationship with. That's something you do for someone who's very close to you. That's something a parent does for a child. That's something you do for someone you love who is you're holding, who's weeping. And that's what God will be doing for us. That level of closeness and intimacy will be our experience when that great and glorious day comes. And there will be no longer any death. Isn't that what we brought into Eden? Isn't that what we brought into this world? Gone. And there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain for the first things, that first creation, have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Look at verse 10. It says, then he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. When he sees this new city coming down out of heaven and coming to the new heavens and the new earth, he's able to see the very glory of God in that city. And you want to hear a great description of a city? This is not a description you'll find in any city that you read about in the newspaper. When you pick up the newspaper and you read what's going on in a city, you see a lot of awful stuff happening. When you read Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22, you begin to see he's already described the the beauty of the city and the artistry of the city and all of the gold and all of the, the, the precious stones and all of that that are all throughout it. Look at verse 22. I saw no temple in her. But Jerusalem is like defined by their temple, this huge temple that was built under Solomon, then it was built again in the days of Zerubbabel, and then it was really made great by the Romans. When he looks at Jerusalem now, there's no temple there. Why? Because it was destroyed? Actually, no. In this new Jerusalem, it's because there's no need for it. He says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The temple's purpose was to draw you closer to God. But if God is there, then you don't need a temple anymore. The temple has no purpose because you're there with the God who dwells among men and who wipes the very tears from your eyes. Verse 23, And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. And the lamb, the lamp is the lamb. So going through that, that Genesis 1 creation week with the sun and the moon and the stars, you don't even need those things anymore because the very presence and the glory of God is so close that it is illuminating all that is there. 
verse 24, and the nations, the nations which are always at war and are, conf- are full of conflict, the nations which the Bible often describes as beasts, which tear one another apart. Even earlier in Revelation, the nations were ruled by that one beast who was called by the dragon, and there was constant uh, economic uh, uh, injustice, and there was constant warfare, and there's all of that stuff. Now what happens when we look at the nations? The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. You don't have the sea. You don't have the night. Those are things of uncreation. This is perfect new creation. Its gates will never be closed. Verse 26, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You're not going to have the same type of crime and deceit and theft and dishonesty and hatred that so often defines this creation. The tares that are growing up with the wheat have been removed. And what we see is the glory of people who have been transformed into the image of Christ. We see new creation through the resurrection taking hold of all that there is once again. Look at verse 22 or chapter 22, the first verse. We've so far been looking at a city, right? Well, notice where this is going to be in verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. So we have a river there. Clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and from the land. That's imagery from Eden of the river. But then that's also imagery from the, the second half of the book of Ezekiel, where you have this river of life flowing from the very presence of God. And he's saying these temple and Eden images are coming together at the very presence of God himself. In verse 2, he says, In the middle of its street on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Where have we seen a tree of life before? In Eden, there was one. Here we have two of them. And we're told about the fruit that they're producing. And when you eat this fruit, it doesn't bring about sin and death. Rather, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. This is a fruit that is constantly being produced, and the very leaves of it bring about healing of the nations. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. Remember Eden. After the sin and they were banished, you had the curses that were laid upon the ground itself and upon the serpent. Well, here the curse has been removed and the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will no longer have any uh, and they will have no need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Remember, we were created to rule. Well, here we're created to reign forever and ever and reign with God as God reigns. We are invited into his dwelling, into his image. This is a picture of Eden, but what if Eden never went anywhere? What if we remained in Eden? What if we multiplied and filled the earth? What if we then built cities in Eden? What if the tree of life was then planted from its seeds and more trees of life grew? What would Eden look like? The book of Revelation gives us a picture of what Eden would be if Eden was never lost. What Eden would be if we had continued to fill it and build within it and we didn't, uh, we didn't uh, uh, take from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil here. What we have is trees of life, rivers of life, and the God who gives life. 
God created this world, and we were given a very, it was a beautiful world, a good world, and we were given a high status within that world as his image bearers to bring about his goodness. But not only did Adam sin, you can look at every one of our lives, and we've all done the same thing. We've all chosen uh, our own wisdom aside from God's wisdom. We have all, in some ways, tried to become our own gods and chart our own path. So God created anew, and he created again. In the womb of Mary and in the tomb in the garden, he gave new life and he gave new creation, of which we are now, at this present age, living into. When you've been baptized, your old self has been crucified, and you've been raised up to be a new self, living in the tension of the new times and the old times, the new creation and the old creation. And you can see both of them when you look to the world around us. But a day is coming when Jesus will return. And a day is coming when God will be victorious over all that is putting, uh, putting harm and death into his creation. And he will create anew. And we will be invited into it. We will begin to rule as we were called to do. We will enjoy the very presence of God as we were called to do. And we will have life forever. Live for that moment now. The way Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 is by saying that since we have such a hope, since we have hope in the resurrection of life to come, nothing you do, the work that you do, it is not in vain. The, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those works will last. Those works have a home now. They have a home with God, and they will be part of the world in which we all long to live in. Remember that the things that you do for Christ matter. Because Christ matters and you matter. And God loves you and he loves you enough to send a son to die for you. So live into that now. If we can help you become part of new creation today. If we can help fill you with the hope of eternal life today. Please let that be known. You can have your sins and your old self and your old creation washed away in baptism. And raise up out of that water to be new creation. To be part of a new life with a new future, a new Adam, and a new hope. If we can help you do that, you can come sit on the front row or you can talk to one of our elders in the library in the back. But please come while we stand and as we sing.